Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Rich Fool and the Saint Francis. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 31st, 2016. This past Saturday, my wife and I returned from walking the way of St. Francis in Italy. 350 miles in 28 days of walking, from Florence to Assisi to Rome. Like our previous pilgrimages in Spain and in France, the walk was many good things. Being together, physical exercise, getting away from our ruts and routines, traveling in a country we had never seen, and meeting people from all over the world. This year included a spiritual, historical dimension, to try in some small but extended way to consider the life and legacy of St. Francis of Assisi, who died in the year 1226. Francis's family was wealthy, but not aristocratic. In 1205, he renounced family and wealth in favor of a vagabond life as a lay penitent, centered around serving lepers, manual labor repairing churches, and fervent devotion to the Eucharist. Three years later, in 1208, two followers joined him, and the three of them sought priestly advice on their form of life. And then most famously on April the 16th, 1208, the priest opened the Missal to through three random passages that would later define the Franciscan order. Go and sell all you have, take nothing for the journey, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. And so it was that St. Francis lived the gospel this week from Luke chapter 12. Watch out, said Jesus, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. To punctuate his point, Jesus told the parable of the rich fool who built bigger barns for his increasing wealth. His smugness has even passed into our everyday lexicon today. Eat, drink, and be merry. But he died suddenly, left his wealth to others, and never learned to be what Luke calls rich towards God. Greed is the desire to possess more than we need. We normally associate greed with money, as Jesus did. But we can be greedy for many things, for food, fame, sex, or power. Christians have always identified greed in the Latin avaricia, as one of the seven deadly sins. There's a horrible paradox in greed. It's never satisfied by what it desires. Rather, the opposite is true. In the fourth century, John Cassian observed, when money increases, the frenzy of covetousness intensifies. Greed, he said, is also insatiable. It always wants more than a person can accumulate. And so Jesus says in this week's gospel, don't be afraid. God knows what you need. He then doubles down on his message. 
he invites us to oppose greed with renunciation. If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. If you believe, Jesus, that it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, or Paul, that the love of money is a root of many evils, then renunciation isn't as bizarre as it sounds. Renunciation is no utopian ideal, nor is it an unattainable standard. Francis is hardly an exception. Many Christians have lived this ideal, most notably the monastic communities. Nonetheless, we've never prescribed the ideal for everyone, and for good reasons. We read in Acts how the believers had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. This financial generosity was combined with social generosity. Personal piety and social justice weren't separated. The early believers subverted normal social hierarchies of wealth, ethnicity, religion, and gender in favor of a radical egalitarianism before God and with each other. In the words of this week's epistle from Colossians 3, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. As the decades rolled by and the Jesus movement expanded, grappling with greed became more nuanced. In his masterful book called Through the Eye of a Needle, Peter Brown of Princeton documents the evolving attitudes and practices of Christians regarding wealth. He rejects two common myths. First of all, what he calls the primal poverty of the early Christians. That was true, he says, for some, but not all. And second, although the church gained new privileges under Constantine in the early 4th century, the emperor did not usher in a time of new wealth for the church. Brown says that didn't happen until the year 370 or so. Until then, what he calls the mediocres, or the in-betweeners, were the church's biggest financial supporters the middling people between the super-rich and the oppressed poor, artisans, small farmers, small-town clerics, tradesmen, and minor officials. Brown describes these people as the solid keel of the Christian congregations through the 5th century. There were no easy answers to the hard sayings of Jesus. Brown documents the various ways that believers grappled with greed. Radical renunciation by the super-rich, 
the anti-wealth of the ascetics, care for the poor, the everyday generosity of ordinary believers, and, finally, the clerical stewardship of massive wealth that was understood as God's providential gift. As with food and fasting, although all believers have a single goal, like the avoidance of gluttony and the cultivation of self-control, it's impossible to commend a single rule to reach that goal due to our different personal circumstances, age, stage in life, health, family matters, and so on. Consequently, we do not prescribe total renunciation of wealth or sex or food for every Christian. That's a voluntary and personal choice. After all, many wealthy women supported Jesus, we read in Luke 8, in the early monasteries. Joseph of Arimathea, we read, was a wealthy man who buried Jesus. Greed is also psychologically complex. Cassian observed how monks who had renounced great wealth got angry over a small sum or a lost book. Monks who practiced renunciation agreed that the possession of money wasn't the ultimate problem. What mattered most was one's disposition, desires, or attitude. The renunciation of money is an outward sign of the more important inward struggle. St. Hesychus of the 8th century put it this way, He who has renounced such things as marriage, possessions, and other worldly pursuits is outwardly a monk, but may not yet be a monk inwardly. Only he who has renounced the impassioned thoughts of his inner self, which is the intellect, is a true monk. It's easy to be a monk in one's outer self if one wants to be, but no small struggle is required to be a monk in one's inner self. Similarly, St. Maximus of the 7th century, he writes, The war which the demons wage against us by means of thought is more severe than the war they wage by means of material things. Battling greed is no easier for a monk or more difficult for an investment banker. Jesus' call to renounce greed is for all of us, not just a spiritual elite. Exactly how you do that is a personal and complex spiritual discipline based on God's unique call on your life. St. Francis was not an inimitable figure who transcended history. He was a normal human being who grappled deeply with the invitation of Jesus to give all, take nothing, and embrace the cross. And that's the conversation not just of a summer walk, but of an entire life. For books this week, I review a small biography. The author is Dennis Lim, L-I-M. The title of the book, David Lynch, The Man from Another Place, New York, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, 2015. This book is 185 pages long. 
I'll always remember where and when I was emotionally blindsided by my first David Lynch movie. It was at a screening of Blue Velvet in Boston at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion. With all my psychic circuit breakers blown, I left before the movie was over. Later, I took some consolation in learning that Robert Roger Ebert didn't like the movie, and that he had a deep antipathy toward Lynch's work, and that another reviewer described it as a red-hot poker to the brain and the last real earthquake to hit cinema. Despite the initial controversy when it came out in 1986, Blue Velvet today is routinely listed as one of the greatest films ever made. And it turned David Lynch from an intriguing oddball director into a brand name auteur. In this brief biography of David Lynch, Lim calls Blue Velvet one of the decade's touchstone works of art. Like a lot of viewers, I've also been flummoxed by David Lynch's later films, like Mulholland Drive, 2001, and Inland Empire, 2006. Lynch insists on the capital letters, although no one knows why. Five minutes into the latter film, life-sized rabbits appear in a living room dressed in suits and ties. Prostitutes dance the 60s locomotion. The film lasts three hours and has no linear plot. Time morphs back and forth between past, present, and future. Place moves between Poland and Hollywood. David Lim, a writer, film curator, and the director of programming at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, begins his biography with a brief overview of David Lynch's life. He was born in 1946. The rest of the book pretty much devotes one chapter each to Lynch's scant opus, Ten Movies in Forty Years. He tries to describe the Lynchian sensibility and how you're supposed to feel about this. The Lynchian sensibility, he says, is easy to recognize and hard to define. It's a cinema of emotional extreme, of consciousness out of control. No other filmmaker, he says, has had his movies so carefully psychoanalyzed, except perhaps Alfred Hitchcock. This slender biography is just one title in a series called Icons by the New Harvest imprint of the publisher Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Other subjects in this series include Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Alfred Hitchcock, Van Gogh, Edgar Allan Poe, Judy Garland, Hannah Arendt, and so on. These books aren't substitute for longer critical studies, but they're still a good way to get a reliable overview of important culture makers. And no matter how his movies make you feel, the director David Lynch certainly belongs in this lineup. The title of the book, David Lynch, The Man from Another Place. The author is Dennis Lim. For movies this week, we go to the country of Iran, 
The title of the movie, Jafar Panahi's Taxi, from the year 2015. We hear a lot about Iran today, but what's it really like? Jafar Panahi is one of Iran's most influential filmmakers. He was arrested back in 2010, along with his wife, daughter, and 15 friends on propaganda charges, sentenced to six years in prison, and banned from making movies, leaving the country, or even talking to the media for 20 years. This movie, Taxi, is the third film that he's made since living under house arrest. The documentary features Panahi undercover and in disguise. He dons a beret, attaches a camera to his dashboard in his car, and drives a taxi around Tehran. By my count, there are eight random passenger conversations in the 80-minute film. Some are whimsical, one is tragic, another is bizarre. There are several takeaways from this. Art is a form of political subversion. Religious conservatism is like constant background noise, and everyone is fearful of the criminal justice system. One passenger was beaten by thieves, but refused to turn them in because he was scared about the punishment they might get from the government. Two passengers recognized the famous Panahi, one of whom is his dissident lawyer, who herself is under investigation by the government. Taxi premiered at the Berlin Film Festival in 2015 and won the Best Film Award. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. It's in Farsi with English subtitles. Once again, Jafar Panahi's Taxi from the country of Iran. In for poetry this summer, by my, one of my favorite poets, Edwina Gately. The title of this poem, Just a Little Difference. It's from her book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. Ah, a resting place, where we come to understand it is not required of us to wrestle constantly and passionately with our God nor pursue relentlessly all God's decrees as we understand them. But only that we listen and wonder and hope and pray that we might, perhaps, make just a little difference, one quiet gray day. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 31st, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.